He's before you. He's behind you. He is with you. He never leaves you. Boy, amazing. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Genesis 3. And let me just say, we've been going through this series on um, Bible basics, and we talked about the first thing was that God exists. And all you have to do is look into the creation and realize that it's too complex to have just come into being without uh, any help. Does anyone here need a Bible? Just raise your hands. I know we have one over here, David, the far side over here. Anybody else? A hand up. But we talked about the idea of the existence of God and that he is uh, an existent God who cares about us and loves us. And, and we don't get that so much from creation. But then we read about or studied the Bible and realized that, uh, boy, the Bible is reliable. We can put our faith and our trust in Scripture and know what it says to be true. And then it tells us more about God. And then we began to study about the fact that God created everything. And when he created, he said, everything is good. And he created man, he created woman, he created them in his likeness, in his image he created them. And as a result, we have uh, minds, we can think, intellectual. We have a heart, so we feel, we have emotion that we experience. We, we have a soul, we have a will, we make decisions. God gave us that ability to make decisions. And it's only as we can make decisions that we can truly um, choose God. Uh, I, I really believe love has the idea of being able to choose. Uh, so important. And then last week we talked about the idea that God gave Adam and Eve, who he'd placed in the Garden of Eden, a choice. They could either choose to obey or disobey. He gave them a tree, a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it was there in the garden. And you remember last week we talked about the fact that Eve didn't do well. She was enticed by Satan. She was deceived by Satan to eat of the fruit, and she said it looked good, it felt good, it <laughs> and, and, and then it was going to make her wise, and so she took of the fruit. And then Adam, he knew better. Eve knew better too, but Adam was told by Eve, hey, you got to try this. It's really good. And instead of setting direction for his family, instead of giving leadership to his family, he followed and he took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and he sinned, and sin entered into the human race, and we experience that today. And I, it's a difficult situation to realize that, that when we disobey, it separates us from God. We'd like to think we can kind of do whatever we want, and that relationship's solid, and yet it isn't. It, it, we're secure in our faith if we receive Jesus Christ, but... It's kind of like in, in human relationships. If we fail to do that which is pleasing or right before another person, we, we have this divide that takes place. As I was looking at, at this morning's message, I, I thought back to the idea that God created us for relationships. He didn't just create us to have a job or make money or buy a house or get a nice car. He created us for relationships. Relationships are so important. And it goes along with what we have here. It's like a child. When that child is first born, the relationship is with the mother. They've been in the womb for nine months. They, they have that relationship. They, they rely on mom. Then they have relationships that grow. They have a father uh, figure in the home. They have uh, siblings oftentimes. So they get a little older. They go to school. They have friends. They have teachers. When they get to a certain age, they may find someone that they say, I want to live with this person for the rest of my life. 
husband to wife, and they build a relationship there, and all of a sudden they have children. There are new relationships, and when we have a celebration of life for that person, when they, if they're Christians, go home to be with the Lord, people come and celebrate their lives because of the relationships that are there. Relationships are important to us, and God says our most important relationship has to do with our relationship with him. Back in, in Matthew chapter 22 is the, uh, the great commandment. And uh, I want to read it uh, and get it just exactly right for you. But it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your mind and with all of your soul. Actually, I reversed those with all of your soul and with all of your mind. And this is the great and foremost commandment. This is the greatest commandment, that relationship with the God. And then it says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And yet relationships are pretty fragile, aren't they? The one with God is solid once that's, that's established. God is the one that keeps that relationship going. It's not what we do. It's what God does for us. But in terms of our relationships with others, man, a word or an action, and that relationship can be dissolved. It causes all kinds of problems, and we realize that that it's easy for those relationships or, or just lacking attention for those relationships to fail. I, I was reading about Thomas Carlyle. Carlyle was a British historian. He was an essayist. He did a number of other things, and uh, he's no longer with us. But Carlyle married his secretary. They had such a, a, an amazing relationship, and he fell in love with her and asked her to marry him, and she married him. And the problem, though, was that Carlisle didn't treat her as much like a wife as he did an employee. She had always been his employee, and, and he really didn't express the affection or the love or the time that she needed. And in time, she was stricken with cancer and spent a great deal of time in bed rest. Last years were spent there in the bed, from what I understand, or months. And she would lay there, and uh, as time went on, she died. Carlisle went to her funeral. And he came home from that funeral and he was grief stricken. She was gone. The house that had been their home was empty and he kind of wandered around in the downstairs for a while and then he went up and he sat beside the bed where she had been laying for those last months. And he saw there her, uh, her diary. And he never would have thought of reading her diary while she was alive. I mean, that was private. That was, that was hers. Those were her thoughts. But now that she was gone, he thought, well, I, I could read it. And, and he picked it up, and he began to thumb through it. And he came to a page that he noticed. And it said, yesterday he spent an hour with me. It was like heaven. He thumbed through a little further, and he came to one. And it said, I, I listened all day for his footsteps in the hallway but he hasn't come, and it's getting late. I guess I won't see him today. He thumbed through some others, and they were similar statements, and he took the diary, and he put it on the bed, and he rushed down the stairs and out the door and through the rain, and he went to the cemetery, and he fell on her grave, and he sobbed, and he says, If only I had known. If only I had known. Because, you see, Carlisle wasn't attentive as he should have been. 
and the relationship was fragile and and he had not spent the time with her he should have and sometimes sin affects our relationships it, it affects how we get along with others there's selfishness there's pride there's a, an unwillingness to spend the time that's necessary it separates us from God too Adam and Eve were told that there was a tree in the garden and if they ate of it, they would surely die. That there would be a separation between them. And yet they ate. And as we come down to verse 24 and 25 of chapter 3 of Genesis, it says, So he drove the man out. This is God drove the man out at the east of the Garden of Eden. He stationed a cherubim and a flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Going back to verse 23, it says, Therefore God sent them out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. But it was the idea that if Adam and Eve stayed there, they might eat of the tree of life, and if they ate of the tree of life, they would remain forever in the condition they were in, in their sin. God had promised, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you'll surely die. Immediately, there was a separation spiritually. It's spiritual death between us and God. But ultimately, there was also physical death because of the sin that had taken place. Well, let me take you back, and I just want to look at the result of this sin beginning in verse 7. It says, Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it says, And the eyes of both of them were opened. They had taken of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had eaten, they had disobeyed God, and they were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together. And made themselves loin, uh, loin coverings to cover their nakedness. And you know, when we sin, there's a certain self-consciousness that comes. When we do things that we don't want others to know about, we want to hide it. And that's really where they were in their nakedness. I, I don't know what happened with the nakedness. Apparently, whether they were surrounded by the Shekinah glory, the glory of God, so they could not see their nakedness, or whether they were just not aware of their own nakedness because of the innocent was the innocence that was there. Um, I don't even know if they noticed the nakedness of the other person. Possibly Adam had already seen what Eve looked like, and Eve saw what Adam looked like. But possibly as they looked down at themselves, they realized their own nakedness, and they wanted to hide it. And that's what sin does. It, it causes us to be aware of our failings, our shortcomings, and we want to hide and we hide not only from ourselves and from others, but we hide from God. Listen to verse 8, 8 through 11. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid. There it is. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord called to the man and he said, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Sin tends to cause us to hide. We... Uh, hide from people. Have you ever noticed that? When we do something wrong, we don't want those that are closest to us to know. 
you can get married and have a very open relationship when you first get married. There's an openness and there's a love that is there. But when we fail our husband or our wife, all of a sudden we begin to draw back. And we even begin to draw up these spiritual or emotional walls. There are areas you just don't talk about anymore. We hide. We, we don't want the other person to see our failures. We're uncomfortable. And, and we do the same thing with God. We hide from God. A person who is not a Christian, and they, they may not understand why, but oftentimes they don't want to hear very much about God because they don't think God has anything for them. Or sometimes even when we're Christians, we fail God. We know that we failed him. We know that we've sinned. We're living a life that's not pleasing unto God. And, you know, I, I've noticed in my own life, in terms of my hiding, I don't feel comfortable even getting into the Bible very much. And it just seems kind of dry. It isn't there. And my prayer life isn't very effective. And... It isn't very real until finally I come to the Lord and say, wow, I've got a problem here. And it's not you. It's me. Because we, we hide. Adam and Eve hid in the garden because they had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had done that which was wrong. We hide from each other. You ever, you ever noticed it, it, little children are so... So open. I mean, you can see what's going on in them. And, and they mess up. And what do they do? Man, they break something. They may hide it under, uh, under the couch or something else. But Mom will never see this. <laughs> you know, and they hide it. And they don't come openly to Mom and Dad anymore. There is, a, there is a line that's been drawn up. There is a wall that has been set up. And they feel uncomfortable because they know that they have failed Mom or Dad. I think teenagers hit that point where they know they're not living as their parents would have them to live. And they tend to draw away. In fact, they would just assume mom and dad didn't know everything going on in their lives. And that happens in our marriages, our closest relationships. And sometimes in our marriages, we draw up these walls between us. And until we begin to take down each one of those bricks that we have established, we, do no longer, we no longer have that open communication. We hide. We hide the things that are embarrassing to us. We hide the things that we don't want the other person to understand. And, and there are some marriages where, man, the relationship is so shallow because you don't want to get past that issue you struggle with. That's oftentimes when a husband and wife need to go to a counselor. They need to sit down with that third person that helps them to begin to remove those things because the most natural thing is for sin to drop barriers. And we hide. When it's discovered, we no longer can hide. Listen to verse 12 and 13. The man said to the woman, or the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. God didn't chastise Adam at that point. He turned to the woman. The Lord said to the woman, what is it you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent, he deceived me, and I ate. And then the Lord God went on to give the curse that would go to the serpent and the others because of sin. But you know what happens when you can't hide anymore? 
you blame. You play the blame game. Any of you ever played, don't lift your hands, play the blame game. Think about that in your own mind. Do you ever play the blame game? You're the problem. You know, it was, it, he came to Adam and he said, why are you hiding? And he said, well, there's <laughs> a woman, the woman. You know, that's, that's the problem, isn't it, guys? It's as a wife. It's always the wife. She's the one that's the problem, isn't she? She gets you to do things you shouldn't do. She gets you to do things you don't want to do. They're not right things to do. It's got to be the woman. And so Adam said, well, it's Eve. You know, God, if you had just left me with the dog, I got along great with the dog, and the elephant was super. He has an amazing memory, and he always came along, and he remembered my birthday, and he remembered everything else I needed, well, when you created me. And he had that memory with the woman. You know, she's, caused, she's been nothing but trouble, Lord. She's the problem. Easy to blame somebody else. And then he turned it around and said, oh, and you know who gave her to me? You're the problem, God. Because you gave me the wife. You gave me Eve. And, you know, I've heard people say that God is, the, is responsible for our sin. The Bible says God neither sins nor does he tempt us to sin. But he did give us within his decree the option to make choices. And in the fact that there was a choice to do which was right, there's also the option with that free will to make choices which are wrong. And we do that. And it divides. And the easiest thing is to blame somebody else. And even in our marriages, we'll get together and we don't like to believe it's us. Listen, listen to what Eve said. Wow, God turned to Eve, and, and he, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, well, it wasn't me. It's a serpent deceived me. Satan made me do it, and I ate. Eve, I think, understood very well now that the serpent was a problem. In fact, I think there was probably a little bit of repentance, if I look at this, in, in Eve's heart. But she still said, it wasn't my fault. It was the serpent who deceived me. And so we tend to want to blame somebody else, even when we come together as individuals and couples. Uh, have you ever noticed, parents here, you've had children, small children, and the children are fighting or something's happened and things haven't gone well, and, well, we wouldn't have had problems. If she hadn't said that or if she hadn't done that, I wouldn't have hit her. He hit me, you know, there's always the other person when they're about five, six, seven, eight, nine years of age. Uh, we find that they're the problem. We don't want to take responsibility for it. Husband and wife, someone may come to the one and say, you know, this is a problem. It's a constructive issue. I, I, I see something in your life, and she said, well, you do the same thing. Or he says, you do the same thing. You're the same way. And we don't stop to take responsibility for who we are. And I believe that's what sin does to us. And sin divides us. And it separates us. And we can never come to the basis of dealing with our issues until we remove those things which separate. And so when Eve was confronted, she simply said it was the devil that made me do it. When Adam was confronted, he said it was a woman that made me do it and it's your fault. And the first thing we have to do when we begin to understand that we have sin is not to continually respond by 
thing. It's somebody else, but we need to take responsibility because sin separates. Back in Ephesians, it talks about that separation between man and God because of our sin. In Ephesians, the second chapter and the first and second verses, it says, you were dead. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You were separated from God in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to Satan's standards, that's what it's saying, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We hide, and when we can't hide anymore, we blame. We say it's not my fault. We live in a generation of people that are growing up and they have struggles in their life and they say, it's because I was, of how I was raised. It's because of my parents. My parents are the ones that caused me to be like this. I'm going to tell you today, here's an issue that we have to deal with. When a police officer picks you up for breaking the law, he's not going to worry about what your parents did. He's going to worry about what you did. Somewhere along the line, we have to begin to take responsibility for our own actions and our own lives. It doesn't matter how we're raised. It doesn't matter where we raised. It doesn't matter what our family was like. We simply come to that point and say, it's my responsibility. Because sin causes us to hide, and sin causes us to find fault with others and to lay the blame on them. And until we begin to take responsibility for ourselves, nothing changes and we'll always struggle with the issues. Well, God made a, a statement here, and I want to just read this. I'm not going to go into detail on these verses, but it says, He said to the serpent in verse 14, Because you've done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you will go, and the dust you will eat all the days of your life. And there is that picture, and it should be a reminder to us of the fact that Satan took control of the serpent or Satan became a serpent. However it works, we don't know the exact details. But the snake today pays the penalty. Does that mean the snake is terrible? I've heard people say as a result of this, this is why women hate snakes. It's not. It's not. But there certainly is an image there that God has placed in the word of God to uh, remind us of, of the sin that took place there. It goes down to verse 16. It says, a woman, I will gladly, or I will greatly multiply, I won't gladly, forget that word right there. I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Ladies, I would suggest when you get to heaven, you talk to Eve if you've had children. Because it says that's where this comes from. It comes back here. And it says, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That, that word, that term, your desire, can be taken in two different ways. One, it means that you will still have a desire to be with your husband, to have that relationship in spite of the pain, in spite of what you're going through, if you look at that. The other one is that he will rule over you. I don't know that there was a hierarchy within the garden, but now there is. The woman, because she was deceived, comes under the authority of her husband. And yet, as you go back to chapter 4, and it talks about sin desiring Cain, it is the idea that sin would want to master over him. There would be that issue of conflict as a result of sin wanting to control. And, 
and that would be an issue here that we could see as well. Um, I've always tended to, to take it that the woman would have a great desire for her husband in spite of the fact that even bringing forth children there would be pain. But the other is just as valid. It says, then he said to Adam, because you listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree about which I commanded you saying you shall not eat of it. Here it is, Adam, you're going to pay the penalty as well. But not only you, the creation, cursed is the ground because of you. In, in Romans chapter 8, it says the creation is waiting for Christ to come back. It's waiting for, to be restored to what it was supposed to be. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, hard work, you will eat of it all the days of your life. There apparently weren't any thorns or thistles in the garden, but it says both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat of the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God took Adam, and he created him from the dust. When man dies, and he promised we would die, when we die physically, we return to the dust in terms of our physical body. Now, I believe there's a resurrection that takes place, and I don't know exactly how God's going to do it. We find it in uh, 2 Thessalonians or 1 Thessalonians where it says Christ will come, and those who believe are caught up together with him, the dead first and then the living going together. And so there's this great rapture of the body of believers. Somehow there is that physical resurrection, but we know also that these bodies that we have left to their, themselves when they die return to the dust. And so the promise was, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall die. Adam, you're going to work hard. It's not going to be easy. It's all there for you. But because of your sin, that's where you are. And then as we read earlier, they were removed from the garden. They were driven from the garden. And it would seem that there's no hope what now? How do we deal with the problem? How do we rectify the problem? Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We've looked at this verse a couple of times recently. It says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Everyone had sinned. And and. You know, where is our hope? We go back to that passage that we read just a few moments ago in, in the book of Ephesians, in the second chapter, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. You were separated from God. They didn't have a relationship with God. So what happens? What's our, what's our answer? Well, the first thing is we need to understand God a little bit. Because God still loves us. We know that he's a holy God. He can't have anything to do with sin. And it's because of our sin that we're separated. We also know that he's a just God. And because he's a just God, we know that sin has to be dealt with. It has to be punished. But we also know he's a loving God. In the book of Psalms, in the... 103rd chapter of, of, of the book of Psalms, it makes a statement concerning who God is. 
We talked about the fact that we can trust the Bible and what it says. And in Psalms 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord, this Lord who holds us accountable is compassionate and he's gracious and he's slow to anger and he's abounding in loving kindness. And though Adam and Eve had died in their relationship to God, it didn't wipe out God's love for them. In fact, he provided for them. He gave them a loincloth that would cover their their nakedness. The first sacrifice that we see in Scripture doesn't really call it a sacrifice. It simply made he, he made clothing out of skins. But then he had a plan, and we begin to see it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where uh, we call this uh, Proto-Evangelum. It's, it's the first uh, gospel message. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your seed, those who follow you, and her seed, and he, singular, will bruise you on the head, and you will cr- bruise him on the heel. It, it's the idea that Satan would persecute Christ or persecute the church, but Jesus, on the other hand, would bruise him on the head. He would crush his head. You know, I I believe that that happened at the cross. I believe that's what took place there. And God promised it way back in Genesis when Adam and Eve first failed. And then we go on in the scripture in about 2000 B.C. God called a faithful man by the name of Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I've got a job. I, I want you to become the father of my people, of my nation. You're going to be the father of the Israelites, and I've got some promises for you. And we go back to Genesis chapter 12, where this first covenant comes in in verses 2 and 3 of Genesis 12. He says, I'm going to make you a great nation, Abraham. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse And I think that carries over in today with Abraham's seed, with the Israelites. The one who curses them will be cursed. And in you, all of the families of the earth will be blessed, Abraham. And there's a blessing that comes to all of us as a result of Abraham. In about 1400 B.C., there was another man. His name was Moses, and God sent him, and he says, I want you to lead my nation of Israel, which is now in captivity in, Israel, in Egypt, they are slaves. I want you to lead them out. And so he went in, and there were ten plagues that came upon the nation of Egypt. And that last plague is what we call the death plague. And it's where God said that if people wanted to be spared, the firstborn of each family, didn't matter whether it was man or beast, If blood was not over the doorpost, he says, what I want you to do is I want you to take a lamb, and this is the first picture of blood being used for the covering or the forgiveness of sins, and it really paints a picture of Jesus on the cross, and he says, I want you to take a lamb, every family, and you take that lamb and you kill it, and you sacrifice it, and you're going to eat it, but you're going to take the blood of that lamb, and you're going to put it over the lintel, over the doorpost at the top, and then you're going to put it down both sides. And when the death angel comes by and he sees that blood, he's going to pass by. And the firstborn in there will be left alive. But if the blood isn't there, then the firstborn dies. Goes to the Passover. It's interesting that the Passover is celebrated at the same time 
as the crucifixion. And we see the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ just as the shedding of the blood of the Lamb. He's the perfect Lamb of God. He is the perfect sacrifice that, that gave his life for us. You go back to the book of Hebrews, though. Hebrews chapter 9. And I want to go back there very quickly to the ninth and 10th chapters. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. And... Um, it says, now when these things had been prepared, the, the things for the, the sacrifice in the temple, when the, the priest would go in and they would sacrifice for the sins of the people, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing a divine worship. But in verse 7, but into the second, what would be the holy of holies, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood. Here is the the idea of blood for the forgiveness of sins, which he offers for himself, because the high priest is a sinner, and for the sins the people have committed in ignorance. And it simply says there are some things that we've done that we didn't even realize they were wrong, and yet God did. Probably because of our arrogance and our attitude, we were not in tune with what God would have or people weren't. Over in verse 22 of of Hebrews chapter 9, it says, And according to the law, one may also say all things have been cleansed with blood. And then he says, and this is the key, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, you look at the, the sacrifices in the Old Testament. They didn't bring about forgiveness. They brought about covering. They covered the sins of Israel. But when Jesus went to the cross, he brought about forgiveness to those who come to him. See, we need to understand that when we have sinned, now we come to him, and we, by faith receiving him, receive forgiveness. Uh, Christ, God, really wants to remove our sin from us completely. If you go down to verse 10 of chapter 10 of, of Hebrews, it says, By this will we have been sacrificed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all, we enter into his sacrifice. God loves us so much that he gave his son for us. God loves us so much he gave his son to rectify what had gone on with Adam and Eve. In uh, Romans chapter 5, 8, it says God demonstrates his love to you. God demonstrates his love for me and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That was the only way sin could be taken care of. It was through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. First Pat Peter chapter 3, verse 18. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. He didn't have to die twice. He didn't have to die five times. You don't have to come back to him if he's already forgiven you for your sins, past, present, and future. For Christ also died for sins once for all the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Ephesians 2.8.9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works. It's not what you do. It's not what I do. It's what God did for us. It's a gift. Gifts don't cost anything. Gifts are given freely, and God gives freely to us. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one should boast. In other words, when I come to God, 
I need to humble myself to the point where I understand my sin. It's not a matter of blaming someone else, holding someone else accountable for the fact that I messed up. But I need to come freely and openly before God and say, man, here I am. And yeah, I can't blame my wife. I can't blame my kids. I can't blame my parents. I can't blame the state that we live in. I can't blame our politicians. I can't blame the the world structure that we live in. I messed up, Father. That takes humility. Because you see, we don't like to do that. We don't like to admit our sin. And I don't think it's just a blanket statement. Oh, yeah, you're right, God, I'm a sinner. I think it's effectively understanding where we sin and how we sin. It it comes as a result of this sin nature that's in us. This is what needs to be dealt with. But the actions are mine. And I need to understand where I am there. I need to be willing to come. In in John 1.12, it said, but as many, Jesus had come, he'd come to his own, he'd come to the nation of Israel, and he said, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. You see, there's a point where it isn't just <laughs> the blood splashed on us and we're all forgiven. There's a point where we, by faith, receive Christ. We admit our need. We come and say, here I am, I I need you today. I receive you today. I give my life to you today. I receive him. To them he gave the right to become the sons of God. Now, here's the second part. To those who believe, who have faith, who put trust in him. That's what that word believe means. Who believe in his name. They were not born. Not of blood, nor of the will of flesh or the will of man, but they are spiritually born of God. I really believe that we humble ourselves. We no longer hide. We no longer blame anybody else. We take responsibility and we come to God and say, I'm a sinner. I have trespassed against your will. By faith, I believe Jesus to be the perfect son of God who died on the cross for me who paid the penalty for the sin in my life, I receive him into my life, and I experience the forgiveness and eternal life that comes through that act of faith. It's only by the grace of God that I'm saved, but I receive it by faith. And if I don't do that, I miss it. Bible basics. So important. Back in the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 5, important verses for us to read and understand. But in verse John 5, I want to start with verse 11 and go through verse 13. It says, this is the testimony, this is the witness that God has given us eternal life. And the life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who has received the son, it says, has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. You either do or you don't. And then he said, these things I have written to you who believe. But as many as believed in him, it said, they have the right to become the children of God. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, who have faith in who he is, so that you may 
know without a doubt that you have eternal life. In the book of Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 7 and 8, listen. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood. We're bought back. We were lost. We've been bought back through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. Oh, man, he poured it out on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will. We don't have a reason to hide anymore from God. We don't have a reason to blame anybody else for our sin or our actions or our attitudes and the things we've done. But we need to come openly and humbly before him and say, Lord, I need you. Right now I need you. Because this is how we take care of our problem. That's what we were talking about before. How do we take care of our problem? Well, we come humbly before the Lord and admit our need and receive him as our Lord and Savior. And it says, because of what Jesus did on the cross, we are forgiven. If you've never done that, I encourage you, before you leave here this morning, talk to me, talk to somebody, or just get down where you are. You don't even have to get down. Just where you are, just say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and I, I can see it in my life, and I ask your forgiveness. And I ask you to come in and be my Savior and Lord. And you deal with the problem with God. We are no longer dead in our trespasses and sins, but the Bible says we become alive in him. What Adam lost as the first Adam, Jesus reclaimed as the second Adam, and we then have eternal life. Well, how about my problem with my friends? How about the other issues that are in my life where I've kind of broken relationships and broken fellowship? How do I deal with those? We're going to look at that next week. I encourage you to be here as we begin to talk about what now? What do I do now? Okay, I have this relationship with God. What, what about my life now? And where do I go from here? Uh, I think that's so important. I think of Carlisle. And when his wife died, he said, I blew it so bad. I should have been there more often. I should have been with her. I should have been the husband instead of the employer. And it was too late. Don't let it be too late for your relationships. Don't let it be too late for your relationship with your parents or your kids. Don't let it be too late for your marriage. If you got walls filled up, if you got spiritual blocks, bricks there, you need to start taking them down. And if you need help to do it, you get help to do it. But we're going to talk about what God says next week. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I don't know everybody's heart here. I, you do. I don't. I, I don't know where they are spiritually, every, each and every one of them. I know that we need to humble ourselves. We need to come to you realizing our need and experience your forgiveness. If we don't do that, Father, we're just kind of caught in this trap that we got into after the situation with Adam and Eve and he passed on that sin nature to us each and every one of us we inherited it 
we received it not so much even just because of the inheritance, but the fact that we as the human race were in Adam when that took place. And so it is imparted to us as human beings. But Father, help us to also realize that what an amazing God you are. You love us so much that you made provision for us to once again have life, real life, life like we've never experienced before. Jesus said it, I came that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. Might we each experience that abundant life, this Father. So thank you. If there's someone here, Father, I pray that uh, doesn't know you, I pray that you'd lay it on their heart this morning as they look back to what took place in humanity and the, <laughs> the lives of our forefathers as we see the sin that became part of our lives and that today they might experience your salvation and your forgiveness in a way like maybe they've never experienced it before. Thanks, Father, for loving us that much. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.